Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty, and this is Talking Design, 2018, episode number 22. In this episode, we'll be listening to Roy Tavener, who's a uh, director of the Red Design Group in Melbourne and has a wonderful um, CV when it comes to retailing. And uh, so welcome to the program. Thank you, Stephen. Roy, uh, I think people need to know a little bit about your background because it it is a very extensive CV. Um, You studied in uh, the University of South Africa uh, in marketing and then did an honours in uh, business economics and then you came to Australia in the mid-90s and one of your first positions or your one of your first, if not the first, was with Maya in the mid-90s and uh, consulting. And um, tell me a little bit about those days because retail is a very topical uh, topical discussion at the moment. Everyone's saying it's dead, bricks and mortar's dead, oh, the internet. Let's look at where retail has been and perhaps where you think retail's going. And you mentioned maybe starting with some of the great stores like Bieber in London. Yes, well, I guess that was uh, very, very early in my career. My starting point was actually in marketing with Unilever, which was really a very good sort of university, if you like. It wasn't a university in the classical sense, but if you're a marketing person, you wanted to be with one of those big companies back then. But that was an era when marketing was going to rule the world and marketing was everything. Nowadays, I'm not that proud to be called a marketer, I have to say. Marketers, in my view, have not done the right thing necessarily in every case. But 1974, I was, um, it was quite unique. I was actually on honeymoon, strangely enough. And um, we happened to be um, lucky enough to win a trip to, to Europe, which included London. And some of the highlights were, um, this is what London was like in 1974, was the tail end of Carnaby Street, which was this absolute boom of fashion on the back of um, the swinging 60s. And um, I won't even describe what I was wearing at my wedding, but it, it, you know, bell-bottom trousers and high heel, high platform shoes were included. So most excited to be in London. And things like, for example, the first nude musical, which was called Al Calcutta, was one of the experiences. And, you know, little old South African guy comes to London, and, you know, all of these things um, are presented. And, and retail was tremendously exciting because the traditional retailers like Harrods, Selfridges and so forth were probably in their heyday. But there were these pockets of retail and beavers I will never forget because I've never seen a store like it since. Um, it was tiny, really, by comparison with most department stores, but it was all about theatre. And that was the overall experience, was just overwhelming. It didn't last very long, like some trends don't, and there were good reasons why they failed. But the actual experience of shopping there and seeing things that you'd never seen before, the quality of the product, amazing people. I won't even call it customer service. It was just you saw somebody wearing something, you thought, oh, I want to be like them. It's almost, I read the book on Bieber, and it was, it was mm. almost like a hat happening. It was. In fact, you I'm, know, I'm like, sure there were people smoking things, I'm sure. I'm sure. But the, the, you know, what, we, what we miss today, they had it in spades. You know, the, the investment in retail theatre, that they, they spent money on things you had no intention of selling. 
was there just as a prop to create the experience. Sure, there was a lot of product as well, but um, the people actually personified the brand. The lady behind the brand, who was you know, literally a, a heroine and everybody, she was an icon back in the day. Barbara Halunicki. That's right. I can't even pronounce her yeah. surname, but um, she was the inspiration behind it. It really came down to that one person. Um, it's really hard if you think about retail today. So fast forward, you know, f- nearly well, nearly 50 years, right? Where are the personalities in retail today? Where, where are they? Where are they? I mean, well, some of the... we've tried. We've had Figgins Diorama. We've had... That was in the 80s. We had George's Reinvented in the 90s yep. from memory. Uh, so people tried. What's the problem why isn't retail, why has it lost its spark? Or do you think there's still pockets of spark in retail in Australia? Look, I'm a strong believer in cycles. You know, I guess at my age and my vintage, I've seen, I think it's four or five booms and recessions in my business career. And if you start to get despondent and say, well, you know, this is the end of the world, let's jump off the, the edge of the cliff, um, you miss the essential element of nature is about cycles and you just got to wait long enough for the cycle to turn and I can probably say that in my career the time that I was most inspired was when I was 27 and got into retailing in the first for the first time um, that was in South Africa as well in department stores but in the era when department stores were ruling the, the retail retail roots pretty much they were the ones everybody wanted to be anchoring their shopping malls um, stores like Bloomingdale's again probably much bigger scale but probably next to Bieber's the most ins- second most inspiring store and I'm talking in the mid 80s now was when Bloomingdale's were at their peak in New York in New York and it was all about product and experience you know they would they would send people buying team. I remember that year they sent a buying team to Tibet for six months. They sent their buyers and their creatives. Fabulous. They just said go and explore Tibet and they came back with this amazing product range and story around Tibet. And so for six months, Bloomingdale's was the place that you could buy anything from Tibet. Did that make them a lot of money? Well, maybe not in the long term, but it actually created an excitement in you know Fifth Avenue. Lots of stores you could shop in. But there was no more compelling store than Bloomingdale's. But eventually they lost the plot. And I think that's a lot um, to do with cycles. Department stores are in probably the last stage of their, of their life cycle. You were mentioning you were at Myers from the mid-90s. Mm. And I remember talking to you and you said, look, uh, in the mid-90s, Meyer in Melbourne, they cut out the windows, they bought in... Um, uh, almost an interactive installation with people sleeping on weekends during the week so you'd actually see how people spent their lives. They kind of, at one stage, cut out the windows themselves and replaced them with plants. Is it How important is the window display? Is it getting the people in to start with and kind of getting an idea? I mean, when you're looking at retail, whatever it is, how important is that first connection? I think windows have always been important, um, particularly in the, the mall type of situations like Maya, and obviously the iconic nature of the Maya windows. Um, 
but it's sad to think about it that you know the Maya Christmas windows no longer guarantee Maya sale, having sales success. So at one at one level, it is really what it is. What it says is window dressing. So you can put. Um, a, fa- a brave face, but b- if you don't look behind yeah, and create a product. Con- exactly. So, you know, attracting people and having them line up outside a store is great, but what if they don't shop inside your store? And at the moment, you'd have to say that people line up outside Maya and probably end up shopping in Uniqlo or, or H&M. If you carry it through, though, and, and what I miss, I suppose, you know, I was only there briefly, but... Um, there was a team at Meyer at the time that was probably some of the best people I've ever worked with, and some of them, like the late Harry Legrand, for example, worked for me. He was an absolute master of retail theatre and visual merchandising. Sadly, passed away a few years ago, but um, I often use Harry as a benchmark. So if I look at Meyer today and say, well, Harry, what, what would Harry say? What would Harry say? Oh, he'd turn in his grave, mate. I'll tell you what, he really would, because... We've lost an element of what used to make department stores exciting. Now, part of that is that they're on a downward cycle. You can't say it's Maya's fault because the same is happening everywhere. In you know, in US, Macy's closing down and and and, and Nordstrom sort of hanging on. Um, you know, J.C. Penney's in trouble. But you know, you come back to cycles. Sears were they started in eighteen sixty five. Only a couple of years later, Harris Scarf started, and they're still going. David Jones started, I think, in the late 1800s. Yes. Did have an interruption of trade, so the, so the oldest continuously how, trading brand is Harris Scarf. Myers started in 1900 and something. Um, Roy, how long do you see this, you know, this trough lasting for? Well, I'm, I'm, I think what's really interesting is that I see green shoots. Um, if I look around the world, and I don't see it yet in Australia, you have to travel. You have to travel to particularly to Asia and Europe. Where are these green shoots? You're mentioning the food establishments in Europe. Well, I noticed that the, um, the last time I was at a big retail show in Europe, um, the theme pretty much of the whole show was the renaissance in food. And if you drill down to that a little bit behind the scenes, you know, there used to be a day when... You'd shop the department stores because that's where the brands were. You didn't have Gucci stores then. You didn't have Louis Vuitton stores back in the day when department stores ruled. Pretty much that's where you went. You went to these stores to get these famous brands. Now they're actually dime a dozen. Every city in the world has a street full of all the brands. Even they're changing. My recent trips in, in Asia, many of those brands don't want to even lease stores anymore. In the arcades. In arcades or even department stores, they want to be pop-ups. You have things like time capsules. Um, Louis Vuitton at the moment have two or three of those stores, which are temporary. And in Indonesia, only two weeks ago, some of the the developers of the shopping malls were saying they can't even lock in these premium brands into a long lease anymore. They just want to have that flexibility. They want to have that flexibility. But actually, you know what... Maybe that's what the customer wants. They want variety. They want a reason to come. The two biggest department stores now don't have any bricks. They both begin with A. One is Chinese, Alibaba. The other one's American, Amazon. Those are the two biggest department stores. And the rest are in a downward cycle 
pretty much in every country in the world. But there's a lot of small, new startups. Some incredible brands are being built. Where where would you put the growth in a place like Melbourne? Who's come to your mind? I mean, is it places like Mecca or who would... I mean, they're doing pretty well at the moment from what yeah, it appears so to be. Certainly Mecca is one of the standouts, you know, because they've done something quite quite unique. Um, T2, although been they've been changed. successful and changed hands and so forth. Really interesting, you know, both of the founders of both businesses were buyers in Meyer at one point. And used to work with and used Uni- to yeah. used to work with Unilever. That's right, and and so you know they've left Maya, they've gone off on their own path, and they've created something rather special, which is quite unique. Um, Mecca, we've we've worked with them briefly, and um, they've successfully blocked you know further entries by brands like Sephora that dominate. So I think there's some real good talent in Australia, but maybe one of the one of the I suppose the downsides of being where we are, it's not about travel distance anymore. We can get anywhere quickly on a, on a plane, but we've got this mentality that Australia is different and it's a bit too hard to do things here. And we go back so to America. So people don't want to supply? Well, you kind of go to America with a, a lot of people go around the world with clipboards and cameras and they say, ah, oh, there's something. I'll go back to Melbourne and do this. But they don't really understand the strategy behind it. That's one of the problems. We kind of love to do tours and trips and, you know, come back with ideas ideas, and implement without really understanding the principles behind. The second one is, is probably a little bit more um, of a realist, uh, reality check. You know what? The whole country is the size of California. I think that's it. I mean, you go to places like Paris, you look at some of the retail offerings, yeah. and they're very quirky, very yeah. individual. Absolutely. And you say, as you said, oh, I'd love to bring that idea back. But, you mm-hmm. know, vintage coins or stamps s- somehow presented in a different way might work mm-hmm. at the Palais Royale, but you bring it back to Melbourne, and they'd go, what's this what junk mean? shop? Like, right. They yeah. don't get the aesthetic. That's they don't right. get the culture. I was at Maya at the time, uh, just before they changed to a single brand. Do you remember the debate raged on for decades about Grace Brothers yes. versus Maya? And I was in that sort of last stage of um, just before they changed. And I remember working for um, as a designer then for a lady called um, Dawn Robinson, she came. She was an American retailer. Came in again. One of the many MDs in my. But she gave us a job to create what was then and still there today called the Maya Basement. And she basically said, "Look, I've seen this happen. I've seen it in in Lafayette in Paris. I've seen people just focus on a particular customer, a young youth culture, with limited and money. With limited money, but they want they want some." place to meet and they want some yeah. some brands and that sort of thing and I can remember having it we had a designer in our team a lovely guy who um, was a bit edgy and he came into a meeting to dawn this is in the boardroom at Maya with all what the mahogany panelling and the pictures of the founders on the besides to have meetings in that room what year were we looking at Midnight. I'm talking about probably nine oh, let's see um, 2005 thereabouts maybe 10 years ago maybe 13 years ago and she said, you know what? This guy had his black nail polish. And she said, I'm going to hire you guys. She had no idea who we were. We made a little presentation along with everybody else. And she said, because I think 
There's a guy with nail polish. Anybody that's willing to come into a guy with black nail polish into the Maya boardroom deserves to be given a chance to design the store. It wasn't my son, was it? <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> but you know what? The Maya basement back then was um, one of the standout successes. You know, it, it doesn't didn't it wasn't in itself a long term solution, but. Um, it was a destination for kids that just wanted something different. They didn't want to shop in the fuddy-duddy departments upstairs. So, for example, Maya moved things like Miss Shop, which was their own brand, down from level two where it had been tucked away with all the other women's wear into the youth basement. And the sales went up. Uh, I can remember saying that our mission for Maya Basement at the time was simply to get the kids that were meeting under this, the clock to meet in the basement. At the station, at Flinders Street Station, that was where you met. I'd meet you under the clock. We said, well, stop the meeting in the, under the clock. They should come and meet in my basement. And we had in there, for example, a 19... It was a, it was a genuine 1952 old Australian caravan. We loaded it full of disco equipment and a DJ that had more body jewellery and dreadlocks. And they he was playing music. And they loved it. Because, you know what? It was something different. Um, and... If you go back to really, I'm fascinated by the whole idea of um, of survival. I guess you know, if you apply Darwin's theory to retail, there's no surprises, because unless you reinvent, you're gone, and you don't regenerate and do something different. Guess what? You're gone. You're gone. Like that's why there's a whole lot of dinosaurs out there. And uh, Roy, you also um, the Red Design Group was very instrumental in uh, the planning, the master mm. planning of RMIT. Mm. Uh, tell me a little bit about that process, because you know I don't think people realise that you're behind that as mm. well. Even though won a string string of awards and <laughs> gongs and accolades. Oh yeah, no, we'd certainly be the people. In, in the background, and the, you know, so our role was really. Um, if we go back to the beginning, there was some very large architects involved, and in we're talking about the the NAS building, the new Academic Street development, which has now been complete for a while, and um, the the architects that were there were asking the RMIT at the time what was the retail strategy, because although it was only a component of what this big development was about, they said we need to understand what. What's going to be the retail and food offer in in NAS complex? Um, and nobody had kind of worked on that yet. And there was a few reports from a few consultants, and I read them, and they'd actually cut and paste other people's research. And we had a, I can still remember a meeting with the um, project team at the time, and I said, you know what, the secret to this is actually to make it unretail. You are not Westfield. This is not the QV QV development. It's not. The, the Emporium. You're a university. You have students. Feel. Different feel. Sure, kids you need to, you know, university students need to eat. And they might need a shop or two, but do not run this as a retail project at all. So, quietly behind the scenes, we did a master plan and developed a strategy called Unretail. And for example, um, and it culminated in an expression of interest that was run by RMIT. They had um, originally planned about 30 tenancies. So if you related to, let's say, a normal shopping mall, it's not a big one, but if it was a food court, it was primarily 30 food offers. No chance they could make money. There's not enough students. It's actually, uh, it, you know... Especially when you're in the middle of town. You're in the middle of town, a lot of competition. And you know what? 
you only trade for nine months out of the 12, so you can't really ask people to be retailers and when there are no students on campus. So we started with this whole rebranding exercise and we created a new brand identity, which was used uniquely for this building, uh, which was in itself controversial because RMIT has very strong brand standards. The second thing we did was did a retail strategy around what kind of offer did the students want? Students were interviewed, that sort of thing. And we concluded there should be no brands. And we concluded that it shouldn't be 30 tenancies, it should be more like 20. And the strategy we went about was creating a, rather than a tender process, or an expression of interest, EOI as they call it, we said let, let it be an expression of ideas, still an EOI but a different pitch. At the end they were oversubscribed, I think it was about 75 retailers and food, food operators that applied for a space for only 20 tenancies. And the people who made the final choice pretty much were looking for local, small businesses, unique cafe offers or unique food operators who not well known. Weren't the big chains, certainly weren't franchises. And when you walk through, you'd say, well, Sense where's the strategy? It's, but you just feel the difference. Now, at the time also, there was some problems with some of the retailers on the campus were losing money. And one of the recommendations we made was to try and make it more affordable. So if a small operator came in, was the right product, the right brand, make sure they made a profit because it's not a shopping mall. Um, Roy, is that strategy, do you think that strategy should be taken to some of the other shopping centres out there? I believe so, definitely. So making it more independent, more unusual, so rather than it being the same here, the same there same there you don't know what you're going to get yeah you know one of the comments that i'd probably make now having learned that experience and seeing others make the same mistake is that um much as i respect the leasing profession and there's some very fantastic companies and very effective people who do leasing leasing is driven by a different motivation leasing is i've got x amount of space and i need to generate y amount of rental revenue and i'll just rent it out and when things get tough and malls are going through as you know as tough a time as they ever have, you lease to the wrong people. You don't think about the customer. You don't think about the mix. So you lease to anybody that's willing to pay the rent. And you know it's not surprising. Six months later, some of them have gone. gone. Um, you know, I was actually on on the weekend. You remember there was a time in in Melbourne when the discount malls, you know, your um, outlet malls. Um, the DFOs and the like were really dominant and probably 10, 15 years ago. Mm. There's one in Nana Wadding right now that's half empty because it's just no, done no its time. Wants it Nobody there. wants it. Mm. You can buy stuff for half of the price online, serve yourself, return it the next day. How do these, how do these physical buildings compete? There's no theatre. They were just leasing people, uh, leasing the space. Um, Roy... You've done a number of projects before we, I'd, I'd like to know, what are some of the key retailers in Melbourne, because we're, you know, it's a, uh, that you, you're very proud of? Mm. Henry Bucks, you've been involved with? Yeah, Henry Bucks has been an interesting journey. It um, started some years ago when the business was in, still owned by the original family, and we did a, a couple of stores, one at the airport and, and certainly their Collins Street flagship. Um, but you know what? That's moved on. It's now the business has been bought by 
um, a guy who used to be one of their suit salesmen. So, you know what, it's not enough to be a family um, dynasty in retail because that doesn't guarantee your success. And most in the last six months, we've been back into Henry Bucks reinventing and, and, and re refurbing it, not spending, you know, millions of dollars, but just improving Lightly the customer touching. experience. Because if you think about customers don't really ask a lot from a retailer. You know, simple things like give me a bit of customer service, show me some products that are a little bit unique, and please just make this experience a little bit different each time. You know, if you go into the same store over and over and over again, it's probably a bit like your home. You know, you get bored. Your lounge room hasn't had a new sofa in it. If retailers don't care and they don't, re don't refresh their environments, um, you get bored. And things are evidently falling behind. So all we've done in um, Henry Bucks now is a, a facelift, really. What I should do, Roy, is I'll have you back on the program in five years' time. Hopefully you'll still <laughs> be hearing my voice. And we'll compare notes in five years' time and see where retail has gone. It won't die, I promise you. <laughs> um, Roy, it's been an absolute treat having you on the program. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation and uh, we'll speak in five years time this has been Talking Design 2018 recorded at RMIT University in Melbourne